This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Try Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, hello. Happy post-Memorial Day weekend, everyone, and I want to start by mentioning how bitter I am about Waiter's Island being sunk into the bottom of an ocean over the weekend. At least he, Waiter's Island probably made itself some uh, some good real estate money uh, for next <laughs> season, so <laughs> he I think sounds- we got... He sounds like he's headed back to Oklahoma City, though, so I feel like he's given the hometown discount. I could see that. I mean, he found a place where he fits, which is good, especially if you're a player as as beleaguered early on in his career as Dion. Um, although, I, part of me always fears and is excited by the notion that maybe the 76ers go crazy and offer him way too much money. And he does. if they did, he would go back. Like, he's such a Philadelphia guy. Um, so that'd be hilarious. I'm not sure if I think that's a good thing, like if I'm rooting for that actively or uh, just a funny possibility, but um, I wouldn't totally rule it out because who knows what they're going to do now that uh, Hanky is out. Yeah, I, I am very curious to see how the 76ers adjust their philosophy and how, to be honest, how Oklahoma City, I think first and foremost, um, their priority is going to be re-signing uh, Kevin Durant, but uh, beyond that, I know a lot of columnists, and I agree, say, you know, at this point, like, Durant can't leave. But then again, I think people said that about LeBron after that loss to the Celtics um, the first time around. Um, it was definitely disappointing. It was definitely not entirely on him, but at least in part on him. Um, management seemed to go out and get the pieces that he needed around him. They couldn't get it done when um, he left anyway. I think Durant's in a little bit of a different situation. Um, I think that they're a much more talented team. I think the individual pieces on uh, Oklahoma City were better than the individual pieces on um, Golden State. It's just that the Warriors are uh, an unstoppable force when when given the ability to jack up shots, um, play with momentum, uh, shoot in rhythm. You know, it's just one of those things where I I thought Oklahoma City was better throughout the series, but um, unfortunately their their late-game struggles um, in those last two games. And I say actually... In game six, late game. In game seven, it was second half, just pretty much from the get-go. Just wasn't in the cards for them. That's unfortunate. Um, would have been nice to see a Syracuse player play in the finals for the first time in almost 40 years. Uh, that said, you know, e- everybody will move on, uh, myself included. Now I'm just rooting for the Cavaliers, just out of spite. Yeah, I, I kind of agree, I think. Overall, like the Thunder, um, obviously they, they ran uh, Golden State off the floor a couple times, 
and even in game six and seven, uh, overall, I think they played with, if not better than Golden State. But but the Warriors have set on these runs where they're absolutely unstoppable. Uh, obviously, Clay Thompson went bonkers in game six. Steph Curry looked like himself for really, I thought, the first time for an extended period of time uh, since his injury earlier in the playoffs in game seven. And like when, when they get that that momentum and they start rolling like that, um, it, you just you pretty much can't play well enough. Like there's there's no way to weather that storm uh, just because they can fill it up so quickly. So um, it was a great series, uh, and hopefully, I, I think we're gonna have a really fun finals. Uh, no matter how you feel about the two teams, um, I'm I'm really looking forward to them, looking forward to them, especially with the Cavs healthy this year. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I hate both teams, and I would have loved a uh, Toronto Oklahoma City. Uh, final but nonetheless you know i'll still be watching i think in you know dan and i are two of the the foremost proponents of, of the nba um especially in fear in syracuse fan circles where it seems like people just kind of ignore uh the pro levels of basketball but um, the league's never been more watchable it's never been more entertaining um even with a forgettable first round um, of the playoffs this year i still think that you know everything really closed um and still could close on a really fun note. Um, it, it's it's great to see you know the sports stars at the end of the day um, take center stage, but not without a, a struggle, obviously. Um, and I think that that's what made it more compelling is the fact that you know this wasn't uh, Golden State and Cleveland just just running roughshod over their respective conferences. I mean, Cleveland did up until the the finals, oh, the Eastern Conference Finals, and then uh, you know Golden State didn't really look the part of world beater um, probably until the second half of game seven this entire playoff but um, this is probably what the NBA wanted this is what um, fans probably deserve Um, I think Oklahoma City would have made for a a much more compelling um, probably almost definitely seven game series uh, between them and the Cavs but still I I think we're in for a for a fun final even if it is Deion Waiters list I mean if the Cavs wanted to get him back real quick I'm, I'm for it I would, you know, it violates every NBA rule, but let's sit down and let's, like, give him a waiver. Why not? Who's it hurting? <laughs> Nobody. Although, as I pointed out right at the beginning of the Eastern Conference Finals, well, the both Conference Finals, and said, you know, the Thunder were four wins away from, from Deion Waiters having more Finals appearances than Melo. That was very sad for me, especially as a, uh, a Knicks fan to, to even think about, but did not come to fruition. Yep, that would have been a thing. <laughs> that that would have been a a fun footnote. Yeah, so uh, back to more Syracuse-related things. Um, Sean had an interesting post today, uh, yesterday, for uh, for those tuning in. Um, you know, New York's college team, obviously a, a big part of our identity. Um, some might argue a big part of how we got into the ACC uh, to begin with. Uh, now, you know, Mark Coyle... When he came in, seemed to think that you know that wasn't our first priority. Our first priority was local stuff. You saw that with the No Huddle Tour. You saw it with the Fan Council, which was largely comprised of nearby fans. Um, it seemed like we we really you know concerted our marketing efforts into uh, into that you know corridor of Central and Western New York through Buffalo um, to get those season ticket holders. Problem is now um, you know Rutgers is kind of encroaching on that space and we always laugh about you know the things Rutgers claims that it isn't the things we claim that we aren't and many other schools UConn St. John's etc um you know 
putting a stake in the ground in New York and none of them really succeeding. Um, Dan, do you think that Syracuse is foolish to back away from its its stronger presence in New York? Should they play a football game there every three years, four years? Is it, is it problematic that Rutgers is now taking all of our signage space that we used to have in Yankee Stadium and uh, and playing Maryland there for unspeakable reasons at Yankee Stadium in a couple of years? Um, so as a New York City resident, like selfishly, I enjoy having games uh, at MetLife just because they were very easy for me to go to and host big tailgates at and stuff like that. So I personally appreciated them. Um, I also totally get why uh, upstate fans and local fans would not. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of uh, fall in between because Syracuse is, I think Dr. Gross was right in a lot of ways be, uh, with the strategy just because Syracuse um, has such a huge uh, alumni base in New York City. Um, I think like over half of the New- the entire alumni base in this state is comprised like in the five boroughs. If not, it's close. It's about 50-50, which is, which is pretty nuts. Um, and just walking around, you see so many Syracuse people. It's, it's like I'd argue as many or more than any other school. Like the only one that really, outside of like the, the schools in the city here, uh, the only one that like really contends, I think, is Michigan. Um, so I, I appreciate the idea of going after those alumni. Uh, the problem is it became very, uh, apparent very early that, um, especially with the MetLife games, like there's a very, a pretty hard cap on how many people you're going to get to turn out, especially at a, something like a MetLife game, uh, where the stadium's huge, maybe Yankee stadium would be more feasible. I think Syracuse showed pretty well in both pinstripe bowls. Um, so I, I wouldn't totally rule out doing it ever again. I think, the uh, how big they went with it the first time with like the 10 year contract, which obviously got uh, cut down um, for the MetLife games and bringing in like these opponents where obviously we were competitive against USC and competitive ish against Notre Dame and should have beaten Penn state. But the fact that you don't win any of those games doesn't look great. Um, and, and I get that you can't really bring a smaller team that you would have a much better chance of beating because then you have, you know, 20,000 people in MetLife total. Um, so overall, I think scaling back the, those types of things is probably wise. Obviously you still want to have basketball games there because that will draw a ton of alumni, but for the signage and stuff, the cab stuff was kind of goofy. I like the Yankee stadium thing just because you saw it so often. Um, so I, I think there, there's a validity to the idea that you want to advertise in New York city, but it definitely shouldn't come at the expense of the local fans who can actually get up to the dome five or six times a year. Um, and I think that's where Gross had trouble, like finding that balance. Um, he just seemed to put all of his eggs in the New York City basket uh, with, you know, while not really doing much for the locals. And uh, Coyle obviously tried to bring that back. Um, and we'll see where the next AD goes. But I think um, I think it's worth having a foothold in New York City. Uh, just it can't be like your entire presence in the entire state just because uh, you're ignoring everyone that can actually feasibly get to the dome and becomes season ticket holders and everything else. I completely agree. I think there's a balance and I think, you know, I don't necessarily believe that we should never be down there. Um, I don't really think that the advertising on cabs and, and, and in Yankee stadium really harmed us. I know it'll be kind of weird. Um, when the Syracuse uh, day at Yankee stadium happens, um, in a few days, uh, I think it's June 7th. Um, and, you know, there's this Rutgers signage in, in the building. It's going to be a little 
strange and, and definitely not something that makes any sense. Um, but but in general, I, I do think that you know we could be down there. I think for basketball, we should be down there every year, and I think that that looks like it's the goal um, under Bayheim and again under under Hopkins too. I think being down there um, is a priority, whether it's against St. John's or Villanova. Um, or this year, for some reason, South Carolina, or or whatever it may be, um, you know, getting down there, and again, against UConn as well, um, at MSG, it just seems like it, it makes perfect sense for us to play, uh, more often than not, one of our longtime foes um, down in the five boroughs. I think for football, it's a little bit tougher, especially with fewer games, especially when, you know, you're not going to be playing in New York City for the most part anyway. Um, I'd argue that you know, while, and this is as someone who went to one of the pinstripe bowls, um, that the bowl games themselves, like the view of the football field sucks. Like the, the atmosphere is fun because it's a bowl game, not because it's a Syracuse game at Yankee stadium. And, you know, if you, you don't want to necessarily ship a conference game down there, especially a compelling one. Um, that said, maybe a pit game would probably be better there than it would do uh, at the carrier dome, given where it falls in the calendar. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think there's a balance. I don't think we necessarily should have just handed the uh, the Florida Rutgers. Um, I don't really think it'll matter much in the, in the big scheme. And I, I do wonder how and, and why we ended up with such lucrative terms with the MetLife deal. And I, I will give Doc Gross that. I know that a couple of years ago, I think that that was the only reason we were in the black for the entire football season was because of those deals. Um, but I, I think that I think that heading down there, maybe even if it's once every five years not the worst thing if we can play a familiar opponent um and and, i mean i'm not playing rutgers definitely not but playing a penn state playing a west virginia you know even playing Pitt down there might not be the worst idea yeah i I think the key is not giving up home dates um obviously we've seen what happens there especially when you don't then have uh great home teams um obviously there was a much bigger issue in the big east than it is in the acc since we have clemson or florida state every year uh, but you definitely don't want to give those up. I, I prefer not giving up conference games. Um, like you said, I, I don't know that people would really miss the pit game, but I think you're setting kind of a weird precedent. Uh, although, unless you have an AD who's really going to jump on it, like I think Gross would have probably been all for that. Um, and I don't think we're going to hire another Gross-like person uh, based on how Coyle was. Um, but yeah, you just you want to strike a balance, like we both said. And and Rutgers, as for Rutgers, um, I'd say uh, with the way the Yankees have played this year, I, maybe that's not the most inappropriate thing for them to uh, take over. <laughs> yeah, as, uh, as non-Yankees fans, we can both chuckle with that. I know a, a buddy of mine at, at work who's also a Syracuse grad would, would not appreciate the, uh, the laugh at his team's expense. But you know what? I think it's also kind of deserved. You, you, you spent long enough winning and lording over the city. It's, it's not the worst thing for, for another franchise to, to do better than you for, for a stretch of a couple years. Yes, this afternoon's Mets game, uh, totally not counting in this discussion, because that was dreadful. Yeah, same with last night's, really. Uh, it's, not, it's not great, especially against a bad team. It, it's amazing that when you lose both your uh, starting corner infielders, that uh, your team struggles. Weird. Never would have it's thought weird. <laughs> in any case, um, going down the rest of our Syracuse news before we hop into everyone's favorite topic, something other than Syracuse. Um, you know, Dino Babers kind of avoided talking about Baylor today, and 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 I, I don't blame him for that. But um, you know, nonetheless, I, I think 
Baylor, and you and I discussed this briefly before we got on the call, was just Baylor's going to be in a very weird position going forward. Obviously, they're in Texas. Obviously, there's there's plenty of old alums and oil money and, and, and excitement about the program. I mean, I was in Waco in the last month or so, um, and I saw the saw the I mean, stadium's gorgeous, facilities are gorgeous, um, great campus. The, the, the city really does revolve around that, that school, and, and that might sound familiar to some um, when reflecting a, a certain basketball program in central New York. Uh, but now I want to see what happens to Baylor when, you know, they really are nouveau reach in a lot of ways. I mean, they're, they're only about five, five to seven years into um, a pretty nice run, but still not amazing run. I mean, they've, they still haven't made the playoff. They still haven't, you know, finished top five. There's a lot Baylor hasn't done. And now I, I'm, I'm very, very curious to see um, what the Bears program does. Um, you know, in the few years going forward. I don't think they fall all the way back to the bottom, but could potentially if NCAA sanctions um, are, are coming. Yeah, it's an incredibly interesting situation. Um, and, I, you know, obviously we should start off by saying that everything that happened there was just absolutely despicable and awful, and cleaning house was well-deserved. And if you heard any of the things that Ken Starr said today, you kind of understand how this happened because apparently he is a like the most clue. Yeah. Just absolutely clueless, awful leader. Um, just strictly football wise, uh, because you know, you, there's no apologizing, uh, or being an apologist for anything that happened off the field. Um, football wise at this, they, they at the same time want to totally blow up how the administrative culture was there. Um, like totally erase it. And I think Jim Grove's actually a really nice, uh, probably one year stopgap for that. Uh, and he'll have probably no expectations beyond that, but you know, he knows how to run a football program cleanly. He's apparently, you know, high character by all accounts. He probably overachieved at wake, honestly. Oh, by a mile. I mean, the 2006 championship first and foremost as just the dumbest thing that's ever happened in the, I, I'd argue one of the dumbest things that's ever happened in the power conferences, save maybe that time that Kansas won the Big 12 and made the Orange Bowl. Yeah, and he said right off the bat, like, I'm not changing the offense. Um, now, who knows how sustained, how realistic that is going forward, considering I don't know how beyond this year and even heading into the season you keep any of those assistants. Like, same thing, obviously very different situation at Penn State, but, like, everyone who was in – especially unless they decide to like actually name people uh, because in that report, there were plenty of unnamed coaches involved in a lot of this stuff. I don't know how you keep any of them um, unless you decide to just throw under the bus, everyone who uh, was involved. Um, And especially like Kendall Bryles, who is going to be the most direct link to arts offense for a number of reasons. Um, Who knows if he makes it to the season, but uh, that's where the tricky thing is. Baylor wants to totally blow up, the culture that was developed under Bryles' uh, regime in terms of how they handled everything off the field. But on the field, clearly they want to keep it because it's been working incredibly well. Their offense is unbelievable. Their defense has probably been underrated the last couple of years, uh, and it, it does enough to, to keep them in shootouts where the offense can go win games. So they want to protect that, and that's tricky because the only like there aren't that many uh, people running the same exact offense as Bryles. One of, one's Dino Babers, who... Uh, obviously, we have the connection with it, Syracuse, and I don't think they can hire him because he was a Bryles staffer, even if it wasn't under the time in the time frame uh, that all this stuff allegedly happened. And also, isn't an alum? <laughs> yeah, which people seem to even a week later seem to have lost on them 
He's not an alum. There is no tie. He was only there for like what two years, he, three years maybe. He was there for four, but it was. But nonetheless, it was. Bryles is his only tie to Baylor, and if Bryles is gone, there's no strong tie. I mean, Babers is a Hawaii alum. He's not. He he's been everywhere. He has no tie to any region, any school. He has ties to certain coaches, and one in particular who whose offense he has adopted and used and, and succeeded with. But other than that, there there is nothing there's nothing about Babers that says he's a Baylor hire. Like Baylor could go ahead and, and change offenses completely. I mean I don't think they should, but identity wise, like I don't think you need a Bryles disciple to run a spread. I just think it's, it helps. Right. Um, and then the other one is Phil Montgomery, who's at Tulsa, who is probably even more closely connected to Bryles. Same, same thing, adopted his offense. Um, I don't think he's in a debt hired either for the same exact reasons. Uh, and he was there, I think, during a lot of this stuff. I think he, he got the Tulsa it, yeah. job. Yeah. Um, he got the Tulsa job like a year or two ago. Um, I think I would, and it's funny how this works out. Um, I think a really good direction for Baylor would be uh, Western Kentucky's Jeff Brown. That's, that's not a bad idea, to be perfectly honest. I think that um, and it's a good segue in the next few minutes. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that that's one great call. I think that if they want to go outside the tree, I think that um, I don't. I guess it depends on what they're looking for too. If they're looking for like a disciplinarian hire and a guy who's going to be very more morality focused, I think that it narrows the pool, especially among if they're going for the similar offense. If they want to hire spread coordinators and have a, you know, kind of a, I guess, CEO type coach that, you know, really kind of, you know, preaches, preaches morality and, and preaches, um, you know, kind of the right way of doing things. I mean, they could do that, um, and, and have the assistance in place to, to implement the right offense and defense. Um, the thing people keep forgetting about Baylor too, is when they keep throwing around all these huge names, like, Beller has oil money. They have all these things, but they had all these things before Bryles too, and it wasn't really doing anything. Um, I think times have changed a little bit, but I don't think they've changed enough. Where Baylor's just gonna, suddenly going to be able to, you know, hire away anyone but like the top ten coaches in, in the league, I, I, in the uh, nation. I mean, I just don't think it works that way. I think that Baylor is, is still probably looking at you know a rising, um, either rising P five coordinator. Or um, you know a, a rising uh, group of five coats like like Brom as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I think it's tricky because you can go and get like Mike Singletary, who's a Baylor alum and a disciplinarian and also a pretty bad football coach, <laughs> and that's fine. Cool. Um, yeah, like that that's the thing that people have thrown around so much, and I, I think the problem the problems at Baylor weren't that they were bringing in a ton of these like awful kids. I think probably most of the kids on that team are, are great people. They just when they had one, they just refused to deal with it, right. and they refused to uh, to do what was necessary to remove them from the program and make sure they wouldn't go pop up at other programs. It wasn't like they were like targeting people with with bad track records and stuff. Maybe in some, you know, there was the, the transfer from Boise State, which was mind blowing because Chris Peterson uh, says he told Bryles all about him. So it just seems like they were very wanton when they had issues arise. Um, but who knows, like, the, the existing roster without those specific players might be fine. You can just go get a good football coach uh, and one that understands, like, basic, uh, 
you know, basic morality. Um, and just human nature. <laughs> yeah, and just like, hey, let's not destroy the football program over, like, uh, you know, five to ten kids. Like, this is it, – it's so stupid. Um, just outside of just being awful, they it, this, none of this had to happen. Like, Bryles, get rid of those t- – they're not going to make or break the program. You get rid of them. You don't need them on your campus. You sh- this should be very obvious. And then you let the ones that are good students and athletes and, and uh, just basic humans, and you let them succeed because they were. It's not like they, you know, like, it's it just my, so much of it's so mind-boggling. It should be very basic, and most college football programs, you know, when they have issues like this, they, they get it right, or they at least come closer than Baylor even attempted to. So... Uh, just the negligence overall is shocking, but I, d- I don't know that you need to necessarily go and get like the opposite of Bryles. I think you just need to get someone who, you know, understands just basic discipline and and isn't going to go take these crazy chances on people and isn't going to cover stuff up when when something does happen. Like every program's going to have issues. Syracuse has had plenty of them, and they come out and they are dealt with pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think that that's the key there. And you know, like you said, you don't need to be this like disciplinarian to just be a decent human being. And I think that's where maybe some people prescribing what Baylor should do are, are kind of losing touch a little bit. Is that you just need to be a normal human being who understands that this isn't okay, um, and, and just understand that that you know lives and well-being of, of fellow students and women comes before wins and you don't need you don't need poor individuals you don't need bad kids who you didn't background check or anything to win football games there's plenty of programs around the country who win without that behavior going on right and when something happens like just deal with it it's it's really unfortunate that like this is even as widespread an issue as it is across college campuses beyond football like it's 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 an issue everywhere it's something that you know, hopefully begins to uh, have the tide turned on it uh, over the next couple of years as, as these issues become more public. But um, just everything that Baylor did was just so, so awful and just so unnecessary. And it was, uh, it just seems like they, they got this like taste of success and they had wanted no possible way for, uh, you know, something to take it down. And in the end, just, by trying to bury stuff, it, it all came back to haunt them, which, and our Bryles, like, uh, when it first happened, I thought, you know, Bryles will probably eventually get a job somewhere again. And then I, you know, some people said like, Oh, he's in his like early to mid sixties. There's a definite chance that he gets, um, a show cost from the NCAA, even if the NCAA doesn't come after Baylor as a whole. He's done. Um, so he's probably done like that. This is, he maybe goes to the NFL, I don't know that anyone's going to be, like, celebrating for our Bryles second chance after all this, but, like, this is, uh, hopefully this is a wake-up call to everyone else if there's any other coaches that are uh, handling these issues with, you know, such a just disregard for the rest of the college community. I would agree. And that's a good place to stop for a little halftime. Um, Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, so this weekend, I got to try uh, Ballast Point's Pineapple Sculpin. So good. Uh, Not as good uh, as yeah, Grapefruit. I liked it. No, I thought Grapefruit's a good amount better. Um, the Pineapple, it's, it's pretty understated. I think it's pretty similar just like the regular Sculpin IPA, which is great. So it's definitely not a bad beer. I think the Grapefruit's a little better. Um, I think they just utilize that flavor uh, more. 
but you know you're not doing wrong either way. Um, I had a Union Jack IPA from Firestone Walker, uh, which is starting to pop up a lot of places, and I know people really like that one. Um, I agree, just a really solid, uh, hoppy, uh, well-balanced IPA. Um, I had a bunch of German beers at this new beer garden that opened up near my apartment, and I thought I checked into them, and I apparently didn't on uh, Untapped, but uh, those happened. Uh, and I will not be able to get you the names of them because they were very German. Um, <laughs> and then I had uh, Game of the the new Omegang, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, Seven Kingdoms, which is uh, a hoppy wheat is what they call it. And uh, that's pretty accurate. I'd say it's more wheat than hop, um, which uh, is appropriate for Omegang because obviously that's their, that's their thing. Uh, but very good. Uh, definitely enjoyed that one. Just a really solid, uh, solid wheat from those guys. And that's obviously what they're known for very nice um i didn't have a ton of different things um i was down at a uh, a wedding in a kind of remote part of san diego ish area it's like so not exactly the uh, the usual san diego fair i would have down there next coming week i'm headed to stone so i'll be able to enjoy some other really good stuff um but some things that i did have um before I left, I had a white mocha from the brewery, uh, just a very good kind of barley wine um, with cocoa nibs and coffee and just a very, very um, heavy, but but in a good way, interesting beer. Um, sorry, James just hopped up on my computer because that's something he does. <laughs> had a uh, happy birthday from Al- Alpine, which I think everyone can pretty much get at this point since they've uh, been bought by Green Flash. Green Flash definitely gets them um, all around the country. Had a, uh, a grapefruit sculpin, which, as mentioned before, excellent. Uh, Swami's IPA from Pizza Port. And then right now, I'm wrapping up a uh, Tart of Darkness with cherries and vanilla uh, from the brewery. It is uh, all the things you loved about the original, plus cherries and vanilla. So, yeah, that's not in stores, but um, for those who like uh, Tart of Darkness, I think that usually gets to New York and New Jersey and a lot of other areas uh, near Syracuse. Uh, this is a, a very excellent variant on that. Yeah, the, uh, the happy birthday is always when I, when I find that, which uh, you can find around New York. It's not the easiest thing in the world to find, but uh, it does get around. Um, definitely one of the better IPAs, I think, coming from out west. Yeah, it was, admittedly, it's fallen off a little bit um, since the purchase. I know that um, Alpine's used a lot of Green Flashes stuff for some of their bottles and that's resulted in a little bit of a step back, um, at least for those of us who uh, were drinking their stuff more consistently. Nonetheless, still a good beer, still enjoyable, and I was at a, uh, a random casino that was uh, selling them for five seventy-five a bottle, so I really can't complain there, because that's about as good as you're going to get at, a, at any sort of bar, restaurant, or otherwise for, uh, for an Alpine beer. Very nice. Indeed. So, brings us to Conference USA previews. Um, everyone's super excited. Slash has already turned off the podcast. But, whatever. We're still going to talk about this anyway. Um, going down the line, uh, first up, as Dan kind of alluded to earlier, um, Jeff Brown's Western Kentucky. Um, this has oddly become the most consistent program in recent years um, in Conference USA. Uh, it's, they've only been in Conference USA for a few years. They moved up from the Sun Belt. 
Um, after struggling mightily in their first few years in FBS, they've since, again, turned into a very consistent program, despite you know playing in a state with, with two larger programs kind of shadowing it, um, and not a ton of in-state talent. Uh, but got to give the Hilltoppers credit. They, uh, they just seem to understand what it takes to really succeed um, at the G5 level, and they really could contend, depending on what Houston does, um, for one of those New Year's Six Bowl slots. Yeah, going into my uh, my research for this, I really like. I knew uh, Brendan Doughty isn't there anymore. Um, he's been unbelievable, or he had been unbelievable for them for a couple of years. Uh, and this is one of my favorite teams in the entire country to watch um, under Brom with Doughty at, at the helm, uh, at quarterback. So I expected them to take like a, I thought you know they were probably primed for a pretty big step back, and they just don't lose anybody else. Like they. Obviously, putting in a new quarterback is not the easiest thing in the world, but they return uh, their top three or four running backs. They return Taewon Taylor, who is one of the most productive receivers in the country. He had almost 1,500 yards last year, 86 catches. Um, just like a super prolific player. Uh, their entire offensive line, I believe, is back. Uh, their defense, you know, a couple holes here and there, but uh, from a pretty solid unit, um, you know, considering the offense that's most of the headlines, but... You know, you'd expect that, that a team that's been this good for a couple of years would have some, some pretty big losses, uh, and they really don't. Like, defensive line is probably where they get hit the hardest uh, at, outside of quarterback, but um, with the amount of talent they return on offense and, and they're rolling in this system now for a couple of years, uh, they should be really good again, and it, it's hard to find someone else that, you know, will, that we can pick uh, preseason. I think they're, they're just clearly the number one. Yeah, and you know what, like, that's what is amazing about Western Kentucky over, like, a lot of Group of Five programs, especially in Conference USA, which has really fallen off in terms of depth of late, is, is that you look up and down the roster, and yeah, they're replacing a lot of starters, but um, that doesn't spell doom. I mean, they're replacing virtually every skill position, but, you know, with the entire offensive line back, you know, that can help those young players grow very quickly, um, even on defense, like... They lose a lot of starters, but at the same time, like there's a lot of experience there nonetheless. Like this team isn't necessarily built like an SEC squad, but they're built like a power program in terms of uh, being able to backfill very quickly and having experience at the right positions that are going to allow them to almost undoubtedly um, run away with this league, um, especially given the state of the Eastern Division um, of Conference USA right now. Yes, and this is a reminder for... I'd say probably 75% of the listeners. Conference USA has divisions. Not only do they have divisions, they have unbalanced divisions. Good times. Which, thanks UAB Regents uh, for doing this. Thanks uh, family of Paul Bear Bryant. For making this happen. Uh, lucky for us, uh, this won't be the case much longer. UAB will be back. Um, we get to see uh, ESPNU's greatest logo of all, and that is the, uh, the fire-breathing dragon for UAB. Sorry, but the, the Syracuse one does not hold a candle, pun intended, to the UAB Blazers uh, ESPNU logo, which reminds us that Dragon mascots should be much more present than they actually are. Yep. I look forward to UAB's return, where they will clearly uh, take all of Alabama's recruits, because apparently that's why this all happened in the first place. They were threatening the Crimson Tide. Uh, sure. Yeah. That whole situation was unbelievably That's stupid. A thing. Until the ACC invites them, and then, yeah, that'll happen. Uh, what up? 
You know, UAB admittedly has... I've always wondered why they weren't better. Just because of their, their position, the state they're in, the city they're in. There's just sort of a... Uh, there's always been a cognitive dissonance between what they were and what they could be. I think that you look at what they're recruiting at right now. I mean, they're a program that doesn't exist, and, and they're a top 60 recruiting um, program at, at the moment. Um, I think UAB is going to come back oddly better than they were before they left. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, they definitely got a lot of headlines out of it, which uh, I think they'd probably trade that back for their 20... Uh, 2015 and 16 seasons, but ultimately, uh, luckily, the entire college football world really rallied behind them, rallied around them outside of those couple Alabama boosters who decided they needed to take this program that was uh, of very little consequence to the Crimson Tide down a peg. So we look forward to you returning, Blazers. Yeah, very much so. One of the more unique names, one of the more unique mascots, um, a cool culture of football down in Birmingham that really shouldn't have been um, railroaded. I think, you know, you look at Conference USA, and we'll get back to the actual teams in a second, but you, you look around Conference USA, and you do see kind of a, a bit of a, a line in the sand in terms of, uh, you know, the West Division, the East Division. The East Division obviously has some growing programs and, and teams that, that could pay off eventually. I think the West has some teams that have struggled, but, but a bunch of, like, established powers. Um, and, and that's odd, you know, saying that about schools like Rice and, and like Louisiana Tech. But at the same time, like these are programs that have that seem to have figured it out over the last five to seven years, at least, um, even if they were, were futile until then. To be honest, I, I'd, I'd almost prefer to see instead of this league, I'd almost prefer to see the best teams from CUSA team up with the best teams in the MAC. And I think you'd get yourself a better league than the American Athletic Conference, or at least very, very close to it. Yeah, I mean, if you, you, you take, like, Western Kentucky, Marshall, Middle Tennessee, uh, Southern Miss, assuming they don't go back into the depths that they were in a couple of years ago, uh, La Tech, Rice, and then you throw in, like, NIU, uh, Central Michigan, Western Michigan. Yeah, it'd be a pretty, pretty fun league. Yeah, at the very least, like you just have a lot of high-scoring games. I think it would kind of capture the spirit of, of, of the fun belt and, and maction all in one with, with just better outputs. Um, I do believe in Southern Miss, and I guess this is a good segue. Um, if only because, you know, you take out those couple years um, after uh, What's-His-Face, Fedora left, and for the most part, I mean, Southern Miss has been one of the most consistent um, group of five programs of all um, over the last 25 years. I mean, they only had, what, like two or three losing seasons in that entire stretch? I mean, that's a program that, despite maybe Mississippi's financial struggles and, and issues with race, and not that they lack talent, but I wouldn't say they have as much talent as some of the, the neighboring states in the South. Southern Miss has still been able to be a very, very consistent program, and one that churns out talent on a year-to-year basis better than most. Yeah, that's why their their struggles. Um, I forget the two seasons. Uh, it was twelve and thirteen, actually, and, and fourteen. They were three and nine. But the the way they went from eleven and two under Fedora in twenty eleven, um, and went zero and twelve under Ellis Johnson, and then one eleven under Monken, and three and nine last year or two years ago, and then they bounced back, obviously last year. Um, but that's why that that whole that collapse was so shocking because under 
Larry Fedora uh, and Jeff Bauer for a long time. He was the coach from 91, or 90 really, stepped in mid-year uh, up through 2007. Uh, they were a winning program every every year going back to 19, except for 1993 and 91. So, um, And before that, they were very good as well. So it, it just, uh, when a program is that consistently good, even if they're not like a huge program, you always see them in bowl games and you, you, know, you always just notice them at the top of the standings in their league. Uh, for them to fall off the way they did, was was pretty bizarre, um, but it seems like they've bounced back pretty well. Uh, obviously, they have a new coach this year, uh, so it'll you know we'll stand to see how they respond to that. Todd Monken left for the, I believe, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator job. Yeah. Um, Jay Hobson, who was a assistant there previously, is taking over. Uh, so obviously, that's a big question because I think you know coaching and leadership. Uh, it's so huge for these group of five programs, and, and consistency is so huge when they have, when you see, uh, you know, you have Jeff Brom at Western Kentucky for a couple of years, and he's able to establish his offense, and he's able to establish, uh, you know, what he wants to do there for the long term, and it makes a lot of difference. It's same with, like, Doc Holliday at Marshall, who's built one of the best programs in this league. So, um, obviously, things to go, go poorly, but uh, Hobson has a pretty decent head coaching record from Alcorn State, um, and it will be interesting to see how they do. They, they're a talented bunch, and... And obviously a winning winning program uh, overall outside of those couple rough years. Yeah, you know what? I, I think, you know, Bill Connolly and some others have mentioned this too, but but that was, um, for Southern Miss, one of the more um, interesting hires, and I think it's actually a smart one. I think that this is a team, while they do lose a decent amount on defense, and it's never easy to replace most of your secondary, um, the fact that, you know, you return a very good quarterback in Nick Mullins, you know, Ito Smith, the running back, this is the team that has all the pieces to pick up right where they left off. And considering last year, you know, mid-year, this looked like a team that was that was going to finish around 500 um, and, and then ends up just going on an absolute tear um, and then playing for the Conference USA Championship. I mean, this is suddenly, you know, again, it goes back to what we're saying. It's funny, like a program that's always successful, one blip, and you're automatically back to assuming the best um, one program that's always bad, one blip, and automatically you're back to assuming the worst. Um, and I guess that kind of relates back to the Baylor point, too. Um, you know, Western Kentucky has now established itself as a consistent winner. Southern Miss has always been a consistent winner. And, and you know, now a couple of years removed from those losing seasons, uh, they're right back to being looked at as one. Um, another team, that in, uh, you know, another one you mentioned, too, uh, Marshall in general, um, been a winning program, you know, looking back to the uh, the Chad Pennington and Randy Moss years, um, looking back to the Byron Leftwich years, and then these, these recent seasons as well. Um, Marshall's gotten right back to, you know, what got it to Conference USA in the first place, um, and that is, you know, just, just a high-powered offense, um, a fun program to, to be around and, and, and watch, and a, a program that understands how to recruit um, Florida really well, despite its own limitations in a talent um, kind of starved uh, West Virginia. So I think that you know Marshall. I know Bill Connolly says that uh, that they're a year away. I, I could definitely see that. I think that um, a year away though in Conference USA East, um, you know, is is not going to be good enough against Western Kentucky. But you know, second place finish is still nothing to uh, nothing to be ashamed of for them. Yeah, looking at some of their stuff, it's actually surprising to me that uh, under Holiday they only have the one 
uh, Conference USA title because it feels like kind of similar to Southern Miss, um, just more recent. Like they, they're one of those teams that's always there. They obviously had a, a great year a few years back um, with uh, Raheem Cato, a quarterback. Um, they just they they exploit uh, a couple different inefficiencies. Well, they go after. Uh, I think they they're able to take partial qualifiers, which is big. Um, I'm pretty sure. So you, they end up getting like a couple of these guys that fall through the tracks at bigger schools uh, every year, um, and they they probably do consistently get the most talent out of uh, the conference USA. So um, I'm, I think it's kind of surprising that Doc Holliday hasn't gotten uh, no one's been able to pluck him out of there. Though obviously he's a West Virginia guy, so um, maybe a little harder than for most uh, conference USA coaches. But he's he's been there for six years, I believe now, and he's just been a, a very consistent winner. Yeah, Holiday's an interesting one. He's not the only one. Um, I think, you know, you're looking at, especially from this past offseason, um, him, you know, Matt Ruley, um, and there's definitely some other guys um, that, that you could you could hone in on. Um, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know anymore if Babers would have left for anywhere else but Syracuse. It's um, not to say we're like a destination job, but I just think... He's somebody who understood that he was he was looking for the right fit. I mean, yes, his his fifth year senior quarterback was leaving, but you know he would have been just fine there. Um, I I think that you know Holiday seems very content. I don't think I think if he led Marshall to like a top ten ranking, something like that, like like that's a condition under which he could leave. And I think maybe if um, WVU moves on from. Uh, from Dana Holgerson after this season, if they fail to live up to expectations and Marshall maybe, you know, goes nine and three, ten and two, maybe that's a conversation that he has with himself. Uh, nonetheless, you really can't, you know, rule out local ties um, with a lot of college football coaches um, and just timing the jump right. And, and you know, that, that that jump can refer to a lot of things. It can refer to first round uh, draft status. It can refer to conference realignment. It can refer to teams moving up from FCS to FBS, um, but for coaches too, you know, um, I think Babers timed it right, leaving Bowling Green for Syracuse. I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see for the results, but, you know, some coaches don't always time it right. I think Holiday was looking for the right moment um, to kind of, you know, make that jump um, from one to the other. Yeah, I mean, I think the West Virginia job, like you said, if that opens up, which... Um, I don't know. It's so tough because it feels like Holgerson is kind of bounced back and forth between like just kind of getting on the bubble and then looking pretty safe. And he's just such like a kind of weird personality that you never quite know what's going on with that. Um, but Holiday, I mean, he, he played at West Virginia and he immediately became a GA at West Virginia. And then he coached there from 83 to, uh, oh, to 99 and then was back there for a couple of years before he got the Marshall job. He's, he's almost 60 now, so maybe that stares him away. But you'd have to think if uh, – if West Virginia wanted to go in a different direction, Holiday would be had to be one of the first guys, or would have to be one of the first guys they would call. You'd think, unless that age is scary to them. Yeah, I, I think that age is something scary for a lot of people, and something's going to scare people away from Babers too. To be honest, if Babers is still at Syracuse in four years, and I would hope he is, um, you're looking at a guy who's in his late fifties, and suddenly like you probably got 10 years max if, if you're a, you're a top program I mean I don't I don't see him as a guy that you know gets to gets to the pros 
um, you know, given the way the pros look at spread offenses still. Um, so you're basically looking at, at him as a college hire, and, and I don't necessarily think that, that colleges can overlook uh, when you're hiring um, age and, and, and look at a guy in his late 50s, early 60s, and say, like, you know, this is a guy I expect to still be coaching in 10 years. I mean, I think Favors has some advantages. Um, I, I do think that, um, and I've said this on the blog and, uh, and in the comments, um, you know, being a black coach is, is, is a big advantage, uh, and I, I think it's something that, you know, we just don't see enough of in, in college coaching because there's so few hires of African-Americans. I think that that's really a shame. But as a result, I am curious to see how Syracuse uses that to their advantage. I think we're probably one to two years away from really seeing like the full kind of depth of, of, of how much impact that has for, for a program like SU. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I thought that was, you know, obviously you, you make that hire because Babers is a, an accomplished head coach to begin with, which is something we haven't had uh, stepping in for a long time. But obviously one of the nice uh, – it's nice to be able to say, you know, you're kind of on the, the forefront of making a, a hire that improves diversity uh, among the coaching ranks. And um, having one of the only black coaches in the Power Five, I think, is a, is a pretty nice uh, point of pride. And obviously we talked about it when he was hired as well. So um, hopefully it does work out, and hopefully uh, we start to get more – coaches coming up the ranks uh obviously our staff is pretty diverse which is which is nice as well he has a a really nice mix of of you know people from all backgrounds uh and guys he trusts so uh hopefully Syracuse can be at the forefront of that uh going forward always good agreed and see everyone we can talk about Syracuse even when we're not it's 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 almost become a bizarro podcast of talking about opposite things and then in putting Syracuse in versus the other way around as, as Dan and I usually proceed or last week where we just, just didn't, it just didn't happen. <laughs> no, <laughs> last week where, yeah, we just ignored it. Um, talking about some other CUSA schools, um, you know, I had mentioned, um, Louisiana tech and I think they were an interesting case because, you know, they were largely just God awful year over year, probably since, uh, Terry Bradshaw left, uh, you know, 40 plus years ago. <laughs> and, and yet since then, um, you know, just, just bad, bad, bad. They get tossed out in the whack, which doesn't really help them from a travel budget recruiting standpoint. Um, it was always understood that I believe they had a standing um, under, it was an understanding or at least a, a get out of jail free card with the whack that if they got an invite from the Sun Belt, I believe, um, that they were, they were allowed to go, uh, scot-free i mean ruston is not like a, a destination and back when realignment was in full swing uh tv markets were, were king and again ruston's not the place you're going um, but yeah they since you know really kind of falling flat for for decades um ever since that sunny dykes year um where they you know were a top 25 program oddly um contended for a whack title um, overplayed their hand and make a bowl game, which that's a whole nother story and something I would love to see. Uh, I would actually, I would love to see a 30 for 30 about that. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I feel like college football should have its own 30 for 30s because th- there is so few, there's such a small audience for it, but um, there's so many stories uh, in college football that are just based solely on pride and personalities and stupidity. Um, but yeah, that's something I'd like to see. But Louisiana Tech, again, in, in the last five years or so, has suddenly become uh, one of the more consistent winners, uh, despite 
not really having the resources um, down there, and they've become a contender for, for the CUSA West title um, pretty much every year, which you know, if you looked at 10 years ago and then said that, I think a lot of people would have looked at you like you had two heads. So I'm learning a little bit about Louisiana Tech here as I look at their Wikipedia uh, page. A, I didn't know that Derek Dooley was the coach before Sonny Dyke. Woo! B, I didn't know Derek Dooley. I mean, I, I knew – I didn't realize he got hired from Tennessee after a 17-23 and year record at Louisiana Tech. <laughs> I mean, like, that's the way you do I it. Then, I then learned that Derek Dooley was a bad coach because I watched those three years at Tennessee. But, man, that – how did that happen? Uh, well, that's what people were wondering the entire time he was at Tennessee. <laughs> That's just bad. And yet, and, the Cowboys hired him after that. Yeah, so then Sonny Dykes was uh, clearly an inspired hire. He had the two really nice years at the back end, 8-5, 9-3, but his big offense went to Cal, and now he is, I mean, I think he's another guy who I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Baylor targeted because of the offense and because apparently he could leave Cal at like, any moment. I feel like we've been hearing Sonny Dykes rumors for two straight years now. Is he on a one-year deal right now? He might be. Like, it just seems like he's, like, profoundly unhappy there, and yet he's still there, and, like, I feel like he could be there another 10 years or he could leave tomorrow. Um, and then Skip Holtz, who has had one of the strangest college football coaching careers, I Ever. think I can, yeah, just a bizarre coaching career. Uh, Even weirder than his dad. Yeah, I mean, his dad's weird because his dad was, like, I mean, he's obviously known for Notre Dame, but he was, like, a very bizarrely, like, he was a total nomad. Other, basically his whole time. I mean, he coached, how many head coaching spot jobs did he have? Arkansas, uh, at big time schools. Arkansas, Minnesota, Notre Dame, South Carolina, like, he was, he stopped, stopped the Jets, all over the place. Um, Skip Pulse, he basically started the UConn program, uh, or, like, got them to where they, you know, where Randy Edsel couldn't pick up and take them to the FBS, uh, and then he was very good at ECU. He had some of those really awesome teams late in his tenure. South Florida hired him. He had a nice first year there and then totally went off the table. And then Louisiana Tech hired him. People made fun of them. And now he's had back-to-back nine-win seasons. So very, uh, just a very peculiar uh, ebb and flow with, with Holtz over the last three stops he's had. Yeah, I don't get it. Um, and you are right with Sonny Dykes. I feel like he's a guy who... It would have made a lot of sense for him to cash in all the chips, um, you know, following uh, Jared Goff's departure. It made perfect sense for him to go, yep, this, this is the peak. Let's go get hired by, you know, a, a top-tier Pac-12 school or, you know, an SEC or Big Ten school. But, you know, Sonny Dykes, what he does has never really made sense. Um, again, he was, he was the mastermind behind the... Uh, the 11 and 2 or whatever it was Louisiana Tech team not making a bowl game um, he's never made sense i don't really know why he's at cal and why he's frustrated at cal um, to be honest if i were him i would just check out the various craft breweries in berkeley um, enjoy the uh, the local scene it's a great town um, and just just relax i mean the the as i've learned from when i was up there the, the standard for success at cal is can ebb and flow very quickly. Um, people got used to the, the Tedford years and, and were were accustomed suddenly to eight and nine win seasons. After a couple of years, they were suddenly accustomed to six and five win seasons again. Like 
at Cal, if you go seven and five or six and six and so or so every year, um, I don't really think many people have a problem with you if you're going to be entertaining while doing it, as Sonny Dykes is. Um, I think that's another reason why you're probably fine with it. Um, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see him headed somewhere eventually. Um, I just don't know where. I think the Big 12 is probably calling his name. And yeah, maybe maybe we're looking at, and this is the first time I'm even thinking of this, maybe Sonny Dykes headed to Baylor. Yeah, this is just, this is the Conference USA slash We're Gonna Find Baylor a Coach <laughs> podcast. Isn't Dykes, isn't um, Dykes a Texas guy? He is a Texas guy, which I didn't know when I said it first. Oh boy. He's from Lubbock. Oh, boy. Or so maybe Baylor goes and hires uh, Kingsbury and he goes to Texas Tech. Um, Fun fact, when I, when I got a new haircut a couple years ago, I, uh, I brought in a picture of Cliff and said, make it look like this. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and yet completely unbelievable. Oh, my. That's... When I when I retweet this tomorrow, I'm just I'm just gonna say, listen to this for the John haircut story. Please do, because whole yeah. Um, so yeah, Sunny Dykes just like stylistically, he makes a lot of sense for the Pac-12. Uh, just wide open offense, lots of points. It just like his temperament doesn't seem to make sense for Cal. Like he just too serious. He seems like yeah, and and very Texan. Um, which makes sense now that I know he's from there. I, I knew I thought he was either from from Texas or like you know Mississippi or one of like the nearby states. Um, so yeah, so you heard it here first. Since I think everyone else has kind of waited on like the who should Baylor hire thing, and I get why, and that's probably the right approach. But uh, Jeff Brom or Sonny Dykes, one of those two. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm doing that, or, or we're going with the double trade, um, and Cliff Kingsbury is headed to Baylor. Um, I think. Yeah, I always wonder why Cal, like, Tedford seemed like a pretty chill guy. I feel like there's not enough coach, like, the, there's very few coaches with a personality to handle Cal because of the atmosphere there. Like, it, like Harbaugh was never a fit for Stanford because Stanford isn't, Stanford grads may be obnoxious, but they're obnoxious about their education, not their football team. Um, Harbaugh was not really that obnoxious when I was going to games there. Um, yeah, I was actually thinking about that today because I wrote something about Harbaugh, um, a longer piece about Harbaugh. I don't remember him being like this at all at Stanford. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people have at this point just because the Niners years were like became so explosive and, and took all the headlines. But yeah, the, the Stanford years were fun. I, uh, I remember occasionally being able to get some of the San Diego... We, we, when I knew he was a rising coaching name, I tried to tune into San Diego in the uh, the Pioneer League here and there, and that was uh, that was always entertaining. He just seemed like he seemed like a guy who who knew what he wanted out of coaching, and then it, it, that's why it was so weird to see the 49ers gig blow blow up so quickly, and it was weird to see how he's taken the Michigan job and really turned it into a circus on a day to day basis. That has he, he he's become, and this is going to cause issues, become the Donald Trump of coaches. In the sense that he's bulletproof, anything he says is going to be, you know, favorited, retweeted, whatever, a million times. And he's just become a lightning rod for, for, for controversy that seems to have no ill effects on him. Yeah, when I was writing, I wrote basically, like, why he's good for college football. And I struggled to not make the Trump comparisons. They did float around, and obviously I don't know that Donald Trump would be good for anything. Um, but they're definitely, like, he just – he just makes news all the time and 
one of the big things I said was like the NFL has become what it is because they just never leave the 24 hour news cycle. There's always something, even if it's totally manufactured. And I don't know that Harbaugh even means to do it or like, no, oh, he knows he's doing it. He, he's, he knows he's doing it for a certain reason. I don't know that he knows that he's doing it for like the greater college football world, but Har- I feel like Harbaugh, anytime we have like a dead week in the college football world, Harbaugh just does something and it just brings it back to the forefront. Um, so I thoughtly appreciate him as someone who uh, writes about college football on a daily basis because, you know, anytime something gets stale, you're probably a day or two away from Jim Harbaugh totally going in on Nick Saban for absolutely no reason. Like, it was a totally unwarranted attack, and I was so happy that it happened because he just refuses to let, like, a boring week or two go by. Yeah, he's... Uh... He's become quite the character, um, and I, I, I want more from the, the rivalry between him and Urban Meyer. I don't think it's going to happen yeah. because I think Herb is, is a much – it's not that he's smarter. I just feel like he's much more calculated with how he interacts with the media. Um, I think Harbaugh just seems like he understands viral social media in a way that very few other college coaches do, and that's that's great for him, and that's great for people who cover college sports. Um, but it's the type of thing that works when he's winning. I, I'd be very curious to see what happens the first time Michigan goes seven and five under him. It, it's crazy because, like, I totally agree, and yet he just doesn't not win. <laughs> just like he's so good. He's his his record is pretty much like unimpeachable. He he stepped in at San Diego. He was twenty six and five his entire tenure there. He turned Stanford around, which should be one of the like they have some built in advantages that have been exploited by him and now David Shaw. Greatest, but, I'd say the, the turnaround that he engineered there is one of the greatest things I've ever seen as a as a longtime college football fan. Yeah, he got them to a bowl in his third year. He they went twelve and one his final year there. Um, outside of the one eight and five year under Shaw, like everything that's happened at Sanford since, and they've become one of the ten best programs in the country. Uh, it started with Harbaugh. Obviously, Shaw deserves a lot of credit as well. But then he went to the NFL, and he went to three straight NFC Championship games and a Super Bowl. Came on the cusp of winning that Super Bowl. Uh, probably should have beaten the Giants in that first NFC Championship game. Definitely should games. not have beaten the Giants in that game. <laughs> I mean, he had his final year. He was eight and eight. That's his first. Uh, yeah. So since he's got to, since his first few years in Sanford, that was the first time he went under five hundred or five hundred or worse. He stepped into Michigan, a team that people like I, I didn't expect Michigan to be better than like a six or seven win team last year. They were terrible the year before. Obviously, they had a little bit of talent. He was a couple uh, a stupid punt play from maybe winning the Big Ten. Like it just it it shouldn't like no one should step in and just rebuild like he does. And I don't know, he hasn't been in a place for more than four years, so maybe he burns out quickly and, and will move on before uh, the job's done at Michigan. But at this point. Yeah, it, I, it's crazy. <laughs> like, and, and I said in my piece, like, if he decided to go to the NFL at the end of the season, he would be at the top of every single list. There's not one team that wouldn't consider Jim Harbaugh their, their uh, favorite to take that job. So I just don't uh, think he can leave he is, Ann Arbor at this point. I think that... I don't think he can. I think he needs to, like... If he, I'd be, I shouldn't be surprised if he moves so quickly. Um, I think he kind of has to win a championship or at least like put in a good eight years there. Uh, but you never know because he's such a bizarre person and he's such a weird person. 
and his personality, I can totally see why he burns up so quickly. Um, but he just doesn't lose. So uh, I think he's one of the most profoundly interesting uh, people in college football. Um, and I think he's made the sport a lot more fun. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to accept the Donald Trump comparison because then it makes me uh, feel like I'm saying the same things about him. Uh, but Tall Triple is a doofy thing that we shouldn't take so seriously, and the other thing is the presidency. So, um, yeah, that's my Harbaugh spiel. That's fair. Yeah, I'm looking at his, like, credentials, and it's... I didn't know that that he was an assistant at Western Kentucky. That is a... That actually turns this whole thing full circle. Um... NFL Coach of the Year in 2011, NFC Champion in 2012. Uh, noted 2011, he lost to my Giants. Um, he's a two-time Pioneer League champion, which three weeks ago Dan would have told you wasn't possible because it wasn't real. Suck it, Marist. <laughs> Take that Marist and the various other programs in the HodgePodge League that is the Pioneer League. Um, won the Orange Bowl in 2011. Uh, did a bunch of other wacky shit. He's, uh, he's what, one, looks like 117... 52 and 1, which doesn't sound overly impressive, but when you consider what he inherited with the Niners and with uh, Stanford, it, it very well should be. Yeah, the Niners were really bad when he took over, and he immediately got them Horrendous. Uh, to the championship. And since he left, they've been awful. Which is just fine with me. He somehow might be underrated, and that's crazy because he's. One of probably, I mean, you, I don't think you, you'd find a lot of people that put him outside the top five in college football. And I don't know that people quite grasp how quickly he just spins really bad situations into really, really good situations. Oh, absolutely. And that's why, to be honest, I, and I had the records to back this up. I, uh, I predicted Michigan would go 9-3 and last year. <laughs> just, just, just solely on Harbaugh. Yep, I, I should have known. Well, I just, I didn't think it would happen that quickly. I thought... I, I had all the respect for him, but it just like last year's team brought in a quarterback from Iowa that Iowa didn't really seem to want. Um, just stuck some guys out there that you know didn't do anything under Hoke because Hoke was terrible. And uh, yeah, came. I mean, obviously he got destroyed by Ohio State, which wasn't the best look for him. But otherwise, it's like they were so close to breaking through uh, for a Big Ten title, which is just crazy. Could not agree more. Um, so looking, I guess, to wrap us up, uh, as we're already well over over the, uh, the hour mark, um, Dan, who do you think is playing for the CUSA Championship uh, this year? Uh, looking at the, uh, the various uh, competitors, and I think there's probably about five teams that, that you could look at as potential contenders here. Uh, well, like I said, I like Western Kentucky to win the whole thing. Um, they just seem like the most complete team as long as their quarterback situation is settled, which is always a big question. Uh, um, and I think it's the top of that division. Is the East is, is stronger. Um, I'm going to... Uh, I, I feel compelled to take Louisiana Tech. I don't, I don't know why. I think them or Southern Miss are the two that stand out. Um, oh, so, Skip Holtz, barring, like, so Skip Holtz gets the Tennessee job? Oh, that... <laughs> Well, where's Butch, where's Butch Jones going? Uh, Butch Jones is going to the NFL. Interesting. Or, or he's just going to be fired solely based on the, the things that are coming like Tennessee, to Tennessee. Tennessee 
maybe not like Baylor level stuff, pretty close. but also not good stuff happening there. Um, yeah. Okay. I sign off on that. I like that scenario. I buy it. Um, and then they, and then Tennessee goes, uh, wins nine games in four years. <laughs> Despite having a, a roster full of blue chips. Yep. Um, I'm looking at, at, at the, the selections available. Um, I would love to pick Old Dominion, but they're in the wrong division, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to make sure, considering I used them as our hype tool beforehand, that, uh, that ODU was our, our standard bearer here. Um, I think the Monarchs are a great program and one to look at for most um, programs that want to move up from FCS to FBS. And in ODU's case, move up from not having a program at all to uh, moving up to FBS very quickly. Um, yeah, the Monarchs are... are, are on the rise, I feel like 500 is, is probably going to happen for them this year, and they only stand to, to gain from there, especially being in the, uh, you know, the, the Virginia kind of DMV area with, with a ton of recruits. I mean, Norfolk in particular has so many um, options there, and we know they're not going to be contending for four- and five-star kids out of Virginia, but um, they could probably do better than most um, in terms of getting those three-star kids, and that's actually pretty good. For uh, for Conference USA. Um, that said, um, I will take Louisiana Tech winning the West. Uh, I think barely over Southern Miss, um, and I'm gonna have them lose to Western Kentucky. Uh, I think that Western Kentucky, uh, the system has proven itself. I think that there might be a slight step back with a, with a quarterback change, but um, beyond that, I just think that they're they're too deep and and too talented. I mean, you look at, depending on, on which, you know, metric you, you see, um, they probably have a top five or so unit um, at every single position, and, and that's not really something anyone else in the league can say. I think they're just too talented. I've got Western Kentucky winning the league and going like 11-2 and two or so. Yeah, so we're kind of uh, in, in lock sync here. Yeah. Lock step. Lock, I don't think lock sync the three. Is now. <laughs> I think we're in sync <laughs> slash in lockstep. Here. Perfect. Uh, so yeah, that's our CUSA preview. Uh, next week we'll be talking about the MAC um, and probably mentioning Dino Babers a bunch yet again because that's where he used to coach. Good times. Well, Dan. Maction. Maction indeed. Dan, thank you as always for joining. It's been a pleasure. Yes, yes. Look forward to matching week next week. Agreed. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Troy Noons. is an absolute podcast. Uh, be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk. And despite the fact that there are no SU teams playing, go Orange. Go Orange. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.